0: Welcome to Catholic Moms in the Middle, a podcast for midlife moms who want to make the next season of life their best one yet. I am your host, Jenny Gwynn. You might find yourself transitioning into a new phase of life as your children become more independent or leave the nest. Mama, I am here to tell you that your life isn't over. You simply have new opportunities ahead of you. After years of pouring your heart and soul into raising your family, it is your turn to reconnect with yourself. In this podcast, we will talk about the joys and challenges of midlife. You will be inspired to rediscover your God-given purpose or to dust off old dreams and make them a reality. You'll learn how to navigate relationships with your adult children, to reconnect in your marriage, or focus on your health by being more active or finally losing the weight you've struggled with for years, whatever this next season of life brings. This podcast will equip and encourage you to be happy, healthy, and holy. Hey, friends. Welcome to Catholic Moms in the Middle. So today we're going to talk about a topic that is often hard to discuss, but the guest that I've invited on is going to shed a new light on it. I have invited Jean Heaton— who is an author, a speaker, a teacher, and a retreat leader? And we are going to talk about addiction. Jean is a Catholic mom who, and this is a quote from her book, has walked through the trenches of addiction. She's seeking to share her experience, her strength, and her hope with everyone who reads her book. So, Jean, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yes. So, your book which is called Helping Families Recover from Addiction, Coping, Growing, and Healing Through 12-Step Practices and Ignatian Spirituality is so powerful. It's powerful for anybody, obviously, who is facing addiction within their family, but I found it powerful in my own life because each have our own coping mechanisms that help us avoid uncomfortable feelings or certain situations in our lives, and I could find practical um, words of wisdom that I could relate to my own life. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Tell us about the book and how it came about. Well, I have three children, and my oldest um, had
1: just graduated high school, had gone off to college, and we knew something was off. And um, we did not want to label him as an addict or alcoholic unless we knew for sure, you know. But the signs were there. You know, all of the signs were there. But denial is a really protective measure that your body uses. And so we stayed in denial for a while. But when we could no longer hide from the truth um, and when we had to face it, um, we did everything we were big enough to do. You know, we, of we course, took him to treatment. We went to the family night. They told us to go to a 12-step meeting, which we did. They um, told us to read as much as we could about the disease of addiction, which we did. I, as a Catholic, sought out a spiritual director. I went to retreats. Um, I just did everything that I, I was capable of doing to make things better. And uh, it was the 12-step meeting that um, led me to run into Ignatian spirituality, which I'd never heard of before. You go to a 12-step meeting, and they don't address God as God. They say the God of your understanding or um, your higher power. And I was worried that I was going to do something that was outside the teachings of the church. So I started researching the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. And actually what I did was— put in a Google search, and it was the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous Catholic Church to see if any connection would pop up, and it did. And it was a Jesuit priest named Ed Dowling. And so, um, you know, that's, that's how I, I got involved in the Ignatian spirituality component. And what I started learning over time was that the 12 Steps in Ignatian spirituality were like hand-in-glove um, where the 12 steps fell a little shorter, Ignatian spirituality, you know, really um, firmed those ideas up and vice versa. And so uh, I just knew from pretty early on that I wanted to share what I was learning because I just understood how epidemic of a problem we face. And I didn't hear anybody talking about it. And I wanted to hear somebody talking about it because... um, You know, it's just so important. And um, moms often isolate when that's going on because you want to protect your kids, want to protect your husband, your sister or brother, you know, so people isolate. So I just
0: knew that somebody needed to start talking about it. So when you say isolate, because when we were talking Um, in person you mentioned that it's an isolating disease and then you also refer to that in the book what do you mean by isolating
1: well the stigma is still and while it has improved uh, i will give you that since you know my my son's been in recovery for eight years but you know we've been dealing with this for this is going on 14 um so 14 years ago, there was a big difference. Nobody talked about it. We talk about it more, but still, when you go into the church, we all seem to have this notion that the families we see in the pews next to us are all perfect. And I see that over and over again. And what happened uh, initially was, for whatever reason, when I would decide to talk to somebody about it, it was always a Holy Spirit moment because every time I did it, just from an intuition, from a feeling, uh, that family would say, oh, I'm "So glad! I'm so glad you mentioned that. This is what's going on in my house." Um. So you know, people are really desperate to have someone to talk to, and they would like to go to their parish, right? But you know, we we, we need to promote an environment that is welcoming for those people, right? And everybody's
0: afraid of it, you know? Right. I love in the book how you break down the steps because the 12 steps can seem so overwhelming and you break them down to where they're so simple. And so the first step talks about, I can't. And step two was God can. And so there's this sense of um, step one is you're powerless. And I think that step hits home to any mom. You know, I often jokingly talk about being a helicopter mom where I'm trying to control everybody, every situation and every outcome. And so that definitely sounds like what you had been doing. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. My father's father
1: was an alcoholic. And while my, I didn't have alcoholism directly with my parents, the effects of my grandfather's alcoholism, I inherited those effects because my father was so worried if my brothers displayed any behavior that reminded him in the tiniest bit of my grandfather. He exploded, right? I had to unlearn a lot of those behaviors. Uh, I had to realize that I couldn't do all the things that my dad tried to do
0: to keep us from having a drinking problem, right? In the book, you were talking about self-care and taking care of yourself, and you said, as a wife and a mother, my full-time job for the past 23 years had been making sure that the needs of the four other people in my home were always tended to. That it, it comes naturally, right? To, to take care of others and to, you know, try to anticipate what they're going through and, and what might happen. And so that the thought of having to surrender to not control what they're doing, that can be really scary for a mom. Yes. Yes.
1: But, you know, I, I kind of got that message at my very first 12 step. Um, meeting Because I, I showed up with a notebook and a pen, and I was going to take notes, and I was going to do everything they told me to, to do to fix my loved one. Because right. that, surely that's what this meeting was about. I didn't have a problem. And uh, <laughs> I got a lot of news that day on, you know, what my part in this fi- family dynamic is. And that really, my greatest job for my adult children especially— is to model for them good self-care. Right. You know? And I have to say that after the shock wore off, the next feeling that I had was relief. I didn't even realize how much I needed to take care of me. Right. You know, my mom was a diabetic. So am I. And she took care of us to the detriment of her own health. We had to do a lot of -of end-of-life care Because of the diabetes, because she didn't exercise, because she didn't eat well, because she didn't take time for herself. You know, so really, it is important that I take care of me
0: for them. So I think it's interesting that surrender brought a sense of release because often different emotions can come up when you think about surrendering like giving up or losing or surrender doesn't always have a positive connotation but once you surrender in this sense it's almost free it seems like yes it is
1: you know wanting to control and fix others he has um a way that I make myself feel different in the same way that a drug or, an, or a drink makes them feel different. We kind of have this mirroring effect that goes on with the alcoholic, derivative and the family member. Because, you know, I feel better when I think they're doing something this way. It feels comfortable to me. Right. You know, when they approach life on my terms. But, you know, I learned that my family members are unique creations of God, and and w- if I leave them alone and I get out of God's way, they may have a different path of getting there, and that's okay, and it's even better.
0: Right. And as
1: I grow in relationship to God, trusting Him with them, you know, it it's it's like a joy to
0: watch what they'll accomplish together, and. Step three, you talked about telling God, take my loved ones for my efforts, and then you leave the rest to him. Right, right. That, that's so powerful. Yes, yeah. and it, it takes courage to do that.
1: It really does take a lot of courage, and, and then it is a relief. And then it was, you know, after a bit of time, it was like, I know if I let go sooner, this is going to get better faster. You know, like Pavlov's dog, I started to make the connection. Oh, when I do give this up, things get better. Right. When I don't give things up, I kind of keep spinning.
0: Right. And and how hard was it to surrender and give that up, even during the time that your son, before he started recovery? Well, that was hard. That was
1: really, really hard, Um. You know, I, one of the things I talk about in the book is, is cutting off his cell phone. Um, I um, We had an addiction counselor, and, and, you know, they said, you know, are you contributing to this disease? And I was like, we, we don't pay for anything anymore. You know, we're not paying for things so that he can use his money to use or drink. And uh, he said, I said, but we, we want to be able to get a hold of him if he needs us. And mm-hmm. he said, Okay. But, you know, he can also get a hold of drugs and alcohol that way with that phone you're providing. And it hit me, and I realized that the intention for me to have that phone was for me to feel better. It wasn't really for him to have. I mean, he had made the choice of drugs and alcohol over his family. You know, this was for me to feel better. And when I realized my intentions were not pure, I cut off that phone, and it was the scariest thing I've ever had to do. I shook the whole time. I was a nervous wreck. But then, you know, when you trust, God always just, you know, covers you in peace. Because, um, you know, I had something happen, and I instantly felt like what I'd done was the right thing. And for about six or eight weeks, I didn't worry one bit. And I can't explain it.
0: Well, and I can remember reading that in the book and thinking what a courageous mom you were and and asking myself, could I do that? You know, mm-hmm. could I cut off all communication? And if I don't know that I could answer that question and do what you did, but I think that's part of the process. I think that was like, part of you working the 12 steps and working through each one. Um, and you talk about, so like the first three steps, restore order between you and God. Right. I've been in charge and look where we find ourselves to be, you Right. Know? right. So the, like it's giving it all, letting go and letting God. And there was another story you shared in the book about being at church and something yeah. happened with a man yeah. And his wife helped him, but then she went right back to praying. And you were like, what is she doing? You know, why is she not helping him? You had the realization that hitting the kneeler was more important than than helping him. And I thought that was so powerful, hitting the kneeler and praying for our children or praying for our loved ones is so much more powerful than anything we can do. Right, right. It reminds me of the Mary, Mary and Martha story. You know,
1: where are your priorities? You know, do you need to be scurrying about, or do you need to spend time with the one that has the power to change things? As
0: midlife moms, midlife women, we've spent a lot of time, especially with our families, being Martha. Yes, yes. We're Mary sometimes, at least for that hour during the week when we go to church. Um but it's like, it's hard to be a Mary when there's so much that Martha needs to do and control and fix and take care of.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Yeah. So then the, the first three steps were letting go and letting God. And then talk about the next steps because it was unexpected for me. You summed it up were for restoring order within me. Right. Right. So, uh, and, in the Catholic Church, we
1: have an examination of conscience that we, we do before we go to the sacrament of reconciliation. Um, in the 12 step world, we have a fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And why do we do that? Um, well, we look for the ways that are getting in our way. In the big book of alcohol, it's anonymous. It says that all of our character defects, Uh, Now, in Ignatian spirituality, they they call that disordered attachments. So you can either call it a a disordered attachment, a thing that we cling to. You know, it's the fixing, the busying ourselves. If I don't do this, they're going to be, you know, I'm clinging to that, not trusting. It might be when somebody crosses me, I get angry because that's how I protect myself. I'm clinging to that. That's a disordered attachment. Or it's a character defect. Okay, so... But the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous says that all of our character defects are our instincts gone awry. We've gone from the bear chasing us to we hear something that reminds us of something that hurt us, and we've lost the connection of how that came to be. And so that inventory is to unearth those things. What are our coping mechanisms that are getting in our way And that are keeping us from having a loving relationship with God, with the self that He created, you know, I call it the essential self, you know, the self that is before I started noticing other people noticing me, you know, and I started putting on, oh, I need to be this way, they're going to accept me, or I need to be that way to be accepted, or I need to look like this person, or behave like that person. So that's the essential self that um, I talk about. So we restore that order of that essential self that we were given at birth, you know? So we look for those things that th- that distort the image
0: of who God created us to be. Right. And when you're talking I, about coping mechanisms, we all have them. Right. When I am coaching women, I call it buffering. You know, there's some emotion that's come up that maybe is not comfortable or we don't want to actually look at. And so we all have these tendencies of things to buffer with, whether it's drinking, eating, shopping, binging on Netflix. There's always something that is our go-to. I think that's what made this book so relevant was that you could see yourself in every step whether you were dealing with alcohol or not.
1: Yes. I mean and that's I mean that's the beauty of it. Um it, one of the things that I talk about is how we can't change others but the changes that we make within ourselves change others. So I can say to anybody that drinks Well, you know, if you didn't drink, your life would be simpler. Or I can say, you know, one of the things I used to do to my son was I used to send him all of these emails from rehab centers, you know, like I was going to fix him or change him. And of course, he ignored all of that stuff. What teenage boy, but especially one that's got a drinking or drug problem, is going to listen to his mother tell him to quit doing the thing that makes him feel safe, you know, and times the pain. And so um, instead of doing that, I had to start cleaning up my own act. So when I stopped getting into his business, he noticed. When he was doing what he was always doing, and I didn't say boo about it, and I loved him anyway. Now, that's not without boundaries, because I did have boundaries. But I right. loved him anyway. He noticed uh, let me give you one really concrete example that was really life-changing for us. Uh, in the beginning, I would say, what is wrong with you? You know, why are you trying to kill yourself? You know, what is wrong with you? And I just took that sentiment and brought it back to me. Because, you know, all I have is is power over is me. So instead of saying it that way, I, I would say, you know, you can't live with me because... I can't watch you kill yourself because I love you too much. That changed everything. Same feeling, bringing it from my point of view and from a place of love. When we can leave fear and go to love,
0: that changes everything, which is what we're called to do. And you talked about a situation in the book where you passed someone who was homeless. And, you know, in your mind, you're like, I don't want to give them money because they're probably going to use it for drugs and alcohol, which is, I mean, if we're all honest, that's the thought that we all have. Like, where, where's my money going to be used? And your son made such a beautiful comment to you about if it's a gift, it shouldn't matter where it goes. If it's freely given, it's a gift. Right, right, right. Yeah, and so when we talk about the surrender and letting go, that we often think, well, I'm not going to give them money because I can't control what they're going to do with it. Right. Well, um, you know, the thing is, uh, I've heard um,
1: some experts say that, you know, I mean, there's this thing called harm reduction that's very controversial, uh, where there are some areas where the homeless population are given clean needles, To And the argument there is that, well, for some of these people that have never known love, for somebody to say, I care enough about you, but I don't want you to get sick from what you're already going to do anyway. uh, I'm not saying that that's right or wrong, because I I don't know. But when I give to the homeless population now with no strings attached, no agendas, it's like, okay, I'm going to see this person as the child of God that they are and I'm going to give them whatever I have to give them and sometimes that might be the only vestige of love that that person will receive that day right and so what they do with it is irrelevant really you know if I make eye contact and I rehumanize you know we've dehumanized over the years, in the name of caring about people. But we have to start seeing them as God sees them. And I think it's when things get better. And it's when I get better, honestly. It's when I get—I become a better human.
0: Yes. And one of my goals in all of my work is to help people magnify Christ in their little corner of the world. And when they encounter Christ and they know— the love that God the Father has for them. It's not based on, do they deserve it? Have they earned it? It's freely given. It's freely given at birth because you're a child of God. And then when they're able to allow that love to transform and heal them on the inside and sometimes on the outside, then they're able to magnify Christ. And so I loved how these 12 steps help you encounter God. They help you be, be transformed by his love. And then the last few steps are all about magnifying Christ in your little corner of the world. Right, right, right. Being to, tr- Ignatian spirituality calls it men and women for others. Oh, that's beautiful. Yes. And so it's taking your present concerns to God and asking him to show you his will. I took that, I think, from step 11, where you take your loved one to God. The, these are my concerns. This is what's happening. And then you continue to step back and right. like, give God control. Right. One of the things I did to like keep
1: my will out of it was I had to say really short prayers. Because if I, if I went long, I would— get involved in things I need, didn't need to get involved in. So I, I simplified it in the beginning. It was heal him, heal me. Whatever that means and whatever that looks like, heal him, heal me. You know, that was my little mantra when I was nervous and didn't know what to do. Perspective of keeping your eyes on God at all times, maintaining that order, right? Right.
0: And then step 12 talks about how can I bring God to others? Right. Right. You know, when you—I always say that
1: the first three steps, um, there are a lot of people that go to 12-step meetings that say, I already already believe in God. You know, I don't need step two. But what I've learned is that we all need to heal the image of God that we hold. Because, um, you know, somebody's probably misrepresented Him to you. Sure. Not, not in any ill will, but like my grandmother would say, don't do that. God won't like it if you do that. Now, she hoped to change the way I behaved. But what she changed was how I saw God. And that's where the danger lies in, in you know, that sort of thing. So in the 12-step world, I always say, let's heal the image of God. Let's decide who taught me about God when I was growing up. You know, I take that verse from... Uh, the the Gospels, where Jesus says to Peter, who do they say that I am? Right. And then who do you say that I am? And I kind of examine those things. and And do they align with Scripture? You know? So I heal the image of God that I hold, but then I work on healing the image of myself. You know? I was made in the image and likeness of God. And if I don't see myself that way, then I have, a, I have a distorted image of me and a distorted image of God, and the relationship is not authentic. Right. But if you know both sides of that equation, then and out of that new relationship, the way I'm going to treat others is going to be the fruit of that work.
0: And I think that's so important to heal the image that you have of God. Because like you, I had a grandmother who— She was not Catholic until very late in her life, but she taught me all of my Catholic prayers, and she always read Bible stories to me. But I can remember she would also say, you better not do that because God's going to put a little black mark beside your name in His book. And I can remember for years— worrying about like having a visual image of my name and a little black mark almost like our our Santa Claus list you know Santa's gonna put a mark beside your name and so that was something that I had to work through she meant well like you said she was trying to change a behavior or keep me from, you know, making a mistake. But yet I found God was somebody who would get angry at me or was judgmental. And I was found myself always trying to earn His love instead of realizing I am loved no matter what I do. Right. And I think that when, when we have that fear of God, it,
1: it creates distance. You know, you're afraid to come close. You're afraid to foster that relationship. Because he's going to see things if I get too close that he's not going to like, you know?
0: Right. So as we're talking about the 12 steps and you share it from the perspective of working the program as the mother and the wife of someone with an addiction, you personally didn't have the addiction, but yet the 12-step program was so powerful and life-changing for you, it's an example that recovery is not just for the person with the addiction. Recovery is for the entire family. Right. So I I can give you an example,
1: a concrete example. Um, You know, as a student of Ignatian spirituality, I look for God in all things. And and I've been married to an equine veterinarian for 37 years. He's a horse doctor. And Many, many times a horse will come into the clinic with a big, gaping wound, and he will spend an inordinate amount of time cleaning the area around the wound. And, you know, I've always said, why are you doing that, you know? And he said, because it is important to create an environment that promotes healing rather than the growth of bacteria. And so I took that and thought about, you know, families and parishes. Are we creating an environment that promotes healing or are we cr- creating an environment that allows the shame and secrecy to keep the disease alive and well? You know, it, it's important. We we have a big part in this healing process. And none of us n- knew that, you know, until you start working at a 12-step program. Right. but um, you know, we, we have a big influence that will make a difference.
0: Right. So as, as we talk about recovery for family, you began this process before your son started the recovery process?
1: Well, he went to, to a, a rehab facility and started it there. Of course, you know, it takes what it takes, and he didn't get it on the first try. So while he was out again, still um, drinking, and he didn't work the 12 steps, and I did, and my husband did. And, um, you know, in the process, we realized that my husband was probably a functional alcoholic. He didn't seem like an alcoholic to me because, you know, he still got up and went to work every day. But uh, there are different kinds of addiction, and he didn't want to stop. So... um you know, when uh, we realized that um, he was more concerned about me throwing away the booze in the house than he was, our son having a safe environment to come home to from rehab, I knew that his priorities were off and that we had to explore that. And so he started his own 12-step meeting. Um, so the home family really has, um, you know, seen counselors and works 12-step programs because it really takes everyone looking at themselves individually to create a new family unit that is
0: one that promotes health. I have listened to Father Calloway. I don't know if you've ever listened to his conversion story. He has a past full of drug abuse and alcoholism. And in his conversion story on YouTube, and then I heard him speak uh, in person recently he made a comment that stuck with me and he said that rehab is a band-aid for a spiritual issue. What do yes. you have to say about that?
1: Well, that I read a similar statement when I first started um when I first started researching for the book and I was studying about the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Young, you know, the J-U-N-G Young, and he was the First person to suggest to one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous that um, addiction is a spiritual problem, and um, he said um, it was interesting that the word alcohol in Latin was spiritus, and the same word is used for the highest religious experience or the most depraving poison. So he said the the helpful formula is spiritus contra spiritum, which means high spirit. Conquers low spirit. So, you know, it is a spiritual problem. And it's why it's important. I think that we can reach out to our parish for help with this spiritual problem.
0: Now, when so you were going through this and you realized that your son had a problem, were there resources within the church? Not that I could find, which was- is why we're that's
1: why I wrote the book. I mean, I found St. Ignatius of Loyola from 1500, but not this generation. I mean, I started finding things along the way, but um, one of the things that I try to do in this book is curate all those things into one place for people to find. There, there are some uh, things that have come along now to help families or to help alcoholics and addicts within the church. But, um, you know, I, I think that um, calling out shame and fear, um, talking about it, I mean, there's a difference between secrecy and anonymity. Anonymity means I don't identify a person. But, but you know, we conflated those two terms, and now we don't even want to talk about the disease. We, we need to talk about the disease. You know, it's, it's claiming our young people's lives at younger and younger ages, It often accompanies suicides. It is an epidemic problem in our world and in our schools. And um, the way we call it out is to talk about it, not be afraid of it. Why do you think people are afraid to talk about it? Well, you know, it's hard to be associated with that um, because it has um, been—we have dehumanized people over the years, let me just start with this. So let's think about some of the things we've heard about addiction. We've heard "just say no. Well, I mean, that's fine and good if you've never put a glass of alcohol to your lips. We kind of glorify alcohol in the world. That's going to be really hard to do. But let's learn where that phrase came from. It was, it was created by a marketing firm. It's not steeped in any kind of understanding of addiction. Same can be said with the war on drugs. The war on drugs was a political ad created by a marketing firm. You know, it became a war on drug addicts. You know, then watch any program, any police show, and, you know, they talk about the junkies. I mean, think about the way uh, the public at large talks about people with a drug or alcohol problem. That's why people are afraid of it. You know, I want to protect my loved one. I don't want them called that. I don't want them dehumanized. You know, I don't like what they're doing, but I don't want them to be
0: dehumanized. We'll just keep that in the family. And I think one thing this book has encouraged me to do is to look at people who are struggling with drugs and alcohol in a different light, whether it's somebody on the street corner or... As moms, I think we all have families in our friend circle who are either actively dealing with addiction or who have dealt with addiction. And of course, you know, when you're looking at that, you're like, well, thank God that's not my family, right? We just don't know how quickly it could be our family, how that disease can take over or how it can stay hidden. It's helped me. It's opened my eyes, like you said, to see everybody as a human being. And even that person who is on the street corner or, you know, the person who is sitting at the bar when we go out to eat and who's been overserved. God loves them just as much as He loves me. Right. You know, yes. just because I'm not— the one who's actively drinking doesn't mean that I'm superior or better. I have my own issues that I'm dealing with. And so it's really made me stop and think about their people. They're people that God created to love, and we have to meet them in love. Right. Well, I'm, one of my favorite quotes is by
1: an addiction specialist from Canada named Gabor Mate, and he says— not why the addiction, but why the pain? Mm-hmm. You know, our, here's an interesting fun fact. You know, opiates don't uh, eliminate pain. They eliminate your awareness of pain. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so that's why they're so effective for people that, that, that's why the addiction occurs is because it removes that awareness of pain and people don't like feeling those icky feelings and you know, I, I volunteered in the county jail for five years, and I learned a lot about what people go through. And it really changes your life to realize that, you know, that some of the people that I've I've looked down upon, I, I can't imagine living the kind of life that they they've lived. You know, survived. I should say survived.
0: Right. Yeah, it's a coping mechanism. Right. And we all have one. Like I said earlier, every one of us has some sort of coping mechanism to deal with the pain. Right. right. So as we close, is there anything else you want to share? Um,
1: really, I think that the, the most important thing is to uh, have an open mind and to question. You know, if you see somebody doing something that, you know, Creates a reaction, you know, like I would have had before. Oh my, look at what he's doing, you know, and that's a very judgmental and and it still creeps up because I'm a human being, you know, I still do that. But now I catch myself and I say a little prayer for that person and I say, I wonder what happened, you know, what happened. You can just switch it from a place of judgment to a place of compassion, you know, we start to see the world differently. And, uh, you know, we're, we're moving from fear. I don't want to be like this guy on the street who's, you know, living hand to mouth. I don't want to be that. So I'm afraid of that. So, I'm, you know, that's where that comes from. But if instead I could say, okay, Lord, that's your child. I wonder what happened. Help him. Help him. Help me to see him the way you do then that changes things. It
0: brings, brings us to a place of compassion. Right. So if there is someone listening who finds themselves in the middle of dealing with a loved one with an addiction and things seem hopeless, there seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel, what is some advice that you would give? Um, go to a 12-step
1: meeting. Go to a 12-step meeting and... Make the changes you need to make within yourself. And I always give this analogy. Um, if, if you look at, if you work with spreadsheets at all, you know that there's a bunch of rows and a bunch of columns. And when you change one item in one row and one column, the whole thing shifts. So don't underestimate what the changes you make will have on your addicted loved ones. You just keep making changes, and it keeps adding up. And over time, you'll start to find that hope is abundant, you know?
0: Yeah. Thank you for being with me today and for sharing. I cannot recommend your book enough, even if your family is not dealing with addiction. This book is so powerful. It opens your eyes, like I said, to see others through a different lens, through a lens of love, and compassion instead of that judgment. Where can people order your book? Um, it is published through Loyola Press, so you can certainly get
1: it there, but it is online anywhere that books are sold. And yes, you frequent Catholic bookstores, which I hope you do. Most Catholic bookstores have it.
0: Okay, and then I know you're also a teacher and a retreat leader. Are there any retreats coming up that you might want to share? Um, yes, it- Um,
1: Ignatius House in Atlanta, there's a retreat coming up in November and then there will be another one in April. I typically do two there each calendar year. Um, Next July, there's one at St. Meinrad.
0: And are those for people in recovery? or Is it for families? Who are the retreats geared towards? For family family or friends of those that are, you know, if you're affected by anybody else's
1: addiction, you're welcome to come. Although when I've had the retreats, um, at the same time as the, um, AA retreats there, I've had people switch over and come that are alcoholics. So, and that's okay too, because usually the alcoholic has a family member that, um, you know, has a problem as well. Okay.
0: And then any speaking engagements where people can find you? Yes. I'll be, um, I'll be in Lake Orion, Michigan, um,
1: October the 10th to, for a dinner that supports guest house. Guest House is a rehab for Roman Catholic priests and religious um, from drugs and alcohol and mental health issues. Uh, And so if you want to support
0: their good work, um, check it out at guesthouse.org. All right, Jean, thank you so much for being with me today. Let's close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Lord, we thank you for your abundant love. We thank you for loving us no matter what we do, what we say. We are so grateful that we can never be separated by your love. Lord, we ask that you help us to look at others, especially those who are struggling with addiction, that you help us see them through your lens of love so that we can meet them with your mercy and compassion Lord, place in front of us those people who need to fill your love today. Those people with a word, a smile, with an interaction, we can help them experience your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, friends, I will see you next week, but in the meantime— Go magnify Christ in your little corner of the world. God bless. For more information on Catholic Moms in the Middle or to set up your complimentary Moms in the Middle mentoring session, go to catholicmomsinthemiddle.com or find me on Facebook at Catholic Moms in the Middle for even more encouragement and support as you embrace this next season of life. The music for this podcast was written by Sean Williams, Catholic composer and musician. You'll find more of Sean's original music at musicbyseanwilliams.com. That is musicbysean, S-H-A-W-N, williams.com.